This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Trauma-Informed Care in and out of the exam room, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Erica Grotto. Today I'm talking with Sadie Alicio, a physician and trauma-informed care expert about the effects of trauma in the healthcare workplace. But first, let's find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. We'll be back in a moment with Senior Editor Nick Hutt and Policy Director Sean Stack. This is Sean Stack, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, and I'm excited to tell you about our new bi-monthly webinar series designed specifically for hospital executives. HFMA will provide timely updates on the latest national healthcare reimbursement and revenue cycle regulations, policies, and trends. This series will equip you with the knowledge and insights you need to navigate the complex world of your healthcare business office. You can register now at hfma.org under webinars. All right, everybody. In this week's episode, we're talking about admittedly a niche topic, but if you are in a role involving clinical documentation or anything to do with patient status during a Medicare covered stay in the hospital, this is important to know. And it kind of slipped under the radar because it's a proposed rule from CMS that was published during the week between Christmas and New Year's. And what it would do is give some patients new appeal rights if their patient status has changed from inpatient to outpatient observation while they're in the hospital. Sean, what are some things that stand out to you about this rule? Nick, this is a, I wanna say, almost common occurrence that hospitals and providers face where, where they have a patient that was you know, in observation they admit them because they believe that that admission is medically necessary. And then many times the payers will come back and say, this needs to be downgraded as an outpatient. And the hospital is forced to downgrade that admit or that observation stay back to outpatient status because the payer won't pay it otherwise. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, as you were saying, this this proposed rule is not final yet. So the proof will be in the details or the devil will be in the details, I guess I should say. It'll be interesting to see how the technical guidance comes out on this rule in this process. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, is it's been a couple of days since I've reviewed this rule, but I did review it in pretty good depth when it came out, when you and I talked about it last offline. This has a 15-year look back. So any patient who feels that they meet these criteria, they have Medicare Part A, they were in a hospital and admitted as inpatient through observation. I think it's three or more days that they needed to be in there, and they don't have Medicare Part B. If they were downgraded to an outpatient status, of course that changes their cost sharing. 
as well as it really puts them on the financial hook if they needed post-acute care and a sniff afterwards or long-term care facility afterwards. So it does have some big ramifications for patients, but also really is it, it has some pluses for the hospital if these patients appeal those those downgrades. I mean, the hospital would then be paid as inpatient, which they believed that they should have been paid with that admission order previously, but through the payer's recommendation, they had to downgrade it. So it is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I think this is a win for the patients, most definitely. And it could be supporting what hospitals have been saying all along. These patients are typically aged. Many of them have comorbidities. They were placed in observation status with an inpatient order because the clinician thought this was the best thing for the patient at the time. So it's going to be interesting to see how this comes out when this is finalized and we start sifting through the backlog of these potentially appealable claims moving forward. Yeah, thanks for the rundown on that. Just to amplify a couple of things and maybe add a detail or two, if, if you get reclassified to outpatient observation and your hospital stay lasts at least three days, you'd be able to file an appeal and have that heard within one day by an official Medicare quality improvement organization. And if you don't get around to requesting an appeal while hospitalized, you can do so post-hospitalization and have that appeal heard within two days. But one of the big things to know is, is what you touched on, which is that there would also be the opportunity to file retroactive appeals for hospital stays going back to January 1st, 2009. And uh, patients, if they want to go that route, would have until one year after publication of the final rule, whenever that may be. So we don't know how many patients would, first of all, hear about this rule, and second of all, act on the provisions. But speaking speculatively, it could be a pretty significant you know, number of patients who want to look into this option. Yeah, especially if by chance they did get downgraded to outpatient status and then got sent to a SNF or needed to go to a SNF afterwards, that is a lot of medical bills there. That's that's pretty high cost care that was uncovered by Medicare and now would be covered by Medicare. So they potentially could get a refund on the, the amount of money they paid for that SNF care afterwards. Yeah, so this this definitely has significant ramifications. Again, it's a proposed rule. The comment period runs through February 26. So if you're a healthcare stakeholder and have any thoughts or suggestions regarding this rule, consider going to regulations.gov and leaving a comment. I also, Nick, would ask them if you have any strong opinions or comments on this rule and you want to reach out to me as well, I will be writing a comment letter on this rule and would love to hear from you um, at sstack at hfma.org. And thanks, everybody. Appreciate your listening, and we'll talk to you shortly. We'll be back in a moment. You've probably seen memes or social posts with a sentiment like, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. It's a nice reminder to be understanding and tolerant in all interactions. But in healthcare, those words carry a special weight. My guest today is talking about how trauma-informed care can improve interactions with patients in clinical and non-clinical settings, and even help workers facing burnout support each other to get through the day. 
Sadie Alessio is a practicing physician at the VA Boston Healthcare System and a clinical educator at Harvard Medical School and Boston University School of Medicine. Like many conversations I have on this podcast, our discussion began with vocabulary. Trauma-informed care is a strategic framework for supporting individuals who have experienced various forms of trauma, whether it's physical, sexual, psychological, or even transgenerational historical trauma. And it has practical applications, both in the care of patients, as well as in our approaches working with one another in any organization. Well, how might that manifest itself in the exam room? When I first started my career, I joined the VA and about a third of my patients have PTSD. And I realized very quickly that many of the exam maneuvers that I was employing, you know, which I had been taught to do in medical school, were making my patients visibly uncomfortable. For example, for generations, doctors have been trained to examine the thyroid gland in the neck by standing directly behind the patient and wrapping their hands around their neck with the thumbs in the back. And that can simulate strangulation. So instead, I started to stand at the patient's side within their peripheral vision with my fingers fully extended on the front of the neck, letting the patient know what I'm about to do and why. So the purpose of a physical exam is getting diagnostic data. I still get the same information that I need to make a diagnosis, but it takes into account more the patient's experience. Let's get into the, the workplace a little bit. We have a lot of issues that can't get solved overnight. But in the meantime, how can leaders alleviate some of the burden of the workers? This is a very complex, deeply rooted problem that is longstanding, but has been exacerbated in recent years, as you mentioned. And what comes to mind for me is that we're looking for leaders to help alleviate our cognitive load. We are just filled to the brim. Our brains have a limited capacity and we all have a tipping point. And primarily it's the systems factors that are contributing to our burnout. It's the electronic health record and all of those demands. It's the clinic workflow, et cetera. Self-care can only go so far because healthcare professionals are resilient. It's just that we have a lot on our plates. So I would say that leaders should be advocating for systems change, both at their own institutions, as well as larger stakeholders across the industry with pharmaceuticals and insurances and state and national policies. I think for me as a PCP, what would help a lot is working to eliminate the bloat of the electronic health record and streamline processes so that we are required to have the fewest clicks possible as we do our charting and give providers adequate time during their work week to address clinical concerns outside of scheduled appointments. We may need more staff just to spread the load of work evenly. And people want flexibility now more than they ever have. We want to be able to name and define our start and end times, which days of the week we work, how long we're working in any given shift, whether we're doing virtual days in person or hybrid. And otherwise, it's about a culture that supports humanism because historically the culture of medicine is really toxic. I mean, I have examples of so many trainees and colleagues who have shared emotion on the job, for example, crying when something horrible goes wrong with a patient and they're told by fellow worker, you know, you're not cut out for this job. So we do need to not only make opportunities for self-care and mental health 
care, but also weave it into the fabric of what we do. I had an interview last year. I talked with someone about burnout and she said something that stuck with me is if if you lose a patient, if a patient dies, you have to go and tell the family and the family goes home and you go right back to work as a physician. That is so right. We are asked to suck it up, forget it, keep going and go see the next patient, go attend to the next person who's crying, screaming, in distress, in need, you know, whatever it is. And I remember hearing from another trauma expert that this is like expecting to walk through water without getting wet. There's been a growing understanding of this concept called moral injury, where we see or participate in things that deeply conflict with our moral beliefs, and we're not able to help patients the way we want to. COVID was the perfect example of this. We wanted to save everybody if we could, but we just couldn't. So there's moral injury and moral suffering. There's also trauma that we hold personally that we bring into the job from perhaps our childhoods and trauma that we face on the job, as we mentioned, workplace violence. And then secondary trauma, we're bearing witness to other people's distress. And it's very easy to take that on, especially if it's not just one instance. This is our jobs. We're seeing dozens, hundreds, thousands of patients per year. That slides very, very neatly into my my last question, which is, you know, you're talking about trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. We don't get That's the right. luxury of experiencing just one at a time sometimes. That's right. <laughs> um, and we're dealing with something that happened 20 years ago. We're dealing with something that happened five years ago. We're dealing with something that's happening today and it's all coming together in our job. How can you balance all of that? How do you handle that in a way that is maybe efficient isn't the right word, but is is productive and caring where you are being kind to yourself as well as those around you. That is so important, being kind to oneself. What comes to mind here is that SAMHSA has outlined four principles of a trauma-informed approach. The first is to realize the widespread impact of trauma. So just realize, hey, this is happening not just to my patients, but also to me, to my coworkers, to everyone in this community, perhaps. Number two is to recognize the signs and symptoms. So perhaps you should pay attention to how your body's feeling and pay attention to signs that your mental health may not be quite there this week. Three is to respond by putting trauma-informed measures into practice. So there are these specific strategies we can discuss for how to take care of oneself. And four is to actively resist re-traumatization. Many times we are in a position where something on the job is making us feel powerless or vulnerable or totally out of control or diminished or uncomfortable in some way. And it makes our brains and bodies feel just like it did back when we were previously undergoing some maltreatment. So that can happen on the job, whether or not we're aware of it. Some strategies for taking care of ourselves amidst all of this it's important for us to learn how to self-regulate. And there are many strategies we can use to ground ourselves in the present and interrupt that threat response that happens in us when we're in fight or flight mode, when we are sweating, our 
heart is racing, we're having quick shallow breathing, and it can even be as simple as taking a deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. A breath that is so deep that your chest moves and your abdomen moves, and that can tell the brain that it's okay to be calm. It's okay to be back in this present moment. And know that through a trauma-informed lens, healing happens in relationships. It's actually through people. So reach out to people who are like-minded, who do similar work, who care about you, and get support. Peer support is really key for healing. And you, I tell my patients this all the time. When you're feeling like you're struggling, try to tap back into activities that make you feel like you. Maybe that's yoga. Maybe it's hiking or fishing. Maybe that's painting or cooking with your grandmother or saying a prayer in church. Re-engage in the things that make you feel like you. And like you said before, be honest with yourself. Be clear and transparent about your limits and know when to get extra help. What am I, what am I not asking you that I should be? I think it's interesting to know that trauma-informed care is a growing social and academic movement and that these practices have been adopted not only in the clinical care of patients, but also outside of healthcare. We have trauma-informed legal practices, trauma-informed public education, definitely trauma-informed social services. There's trauma-informed yoga, trauma-informed interior design. Oprah wrote a book with Dr. Bruce Perry called What Happened to You? In reference to what we were talking about before, it's firmly rooted in trauma-informed principles and discusses trauma and healing. So it's an exciting time to be doing this work. And there's been more of a focus on how trauma-informed approaches can transform organizations. Research has begun to show that in trauma-informed service settings, these teams achieve better outcomes. There's positive impacts on staff satisfaction. Trauma-informed care can improve patients' perception of their providers and improve employee psychological safety scores. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Additional reporting and editing are by Nick Hutt, Sean Stack, and the HFMA editorial team. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the director of content. Our president and CEO is Ann Jordan. And please run out and get your Hello Kitty fish crackers today before they sell out.